Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do it, and I think I know who. I'm almost positive I know who's going to do it. Someone is going to blame impeachment for why they failed in Iowa. I'm, I'm telling you, it, it's, it's going to happen. Sometimes you just can see these things coming down the pike. There is the phrase that success has a million fathers and failure is an orphan. But I don't think that that's true in politics. Because in politics, explaining away defeat is almost as important as doling out victory credit. In fact, you very rarely see doling out victory credit. That, that's far more disputed who exactly did what, but you always see a rationale as to why you lost. And some people are a little bit more truthful. I backed a issue that wound up being a loser, or uh, sometimes there are calamities, events that happen and just seem to eclipse where you're going with things. But just as often, there are reasons that maybe aren't always driving with the facts. And so it is my belief that after months, if not a year plus of planning, all of the wages for your staff, all of the travel hours, the millions of dollars that were spent on these primary campaigns that are about to see their first test that somebody's gonna come up on the short side of the stick and at that point, they're gonna point to impeachment. Well, there's only a few that could have such an excuse, right? Bennett, Klobuchar, Warren Sanders. Now, without a doubt, if Biden or Pete win, then the Bernie folks will blame impeachment. They will say, look, we were peaking, peaking in the polls a week before, which they are. And if we were able to sustain momentum locally, not just pop in and out for one event, but we were really able to keep the schedule that we wanted to keep, then we would have won. And I think that that's actually a fairly astute assessment. Same with Warren. But Klobuchar, Klobuchar has seen her best polls in Iowa in the last week. Klobuchar is in the moderate lane where two other candidates are also strip-mining that vote. And also, because of the quirks of the caucus system, in places where Klobuchar isn't viable, a.k.a. She, her supporters are not 15% of the people that show up at that caucus precinct, then she is more likely to feed into either the Pete 
or Biden can. What I'm trying to tell you is I believe that next Monday we will see the thudding finality of Clobmentum. And at that point, when the final hands are revealed, I believe that you, dear listener, will be on Twitter or you'll be refreshing results somewhere on a news site. Possibly you'll be watching cable coverage. And there will be some version of the following phrase. A source from inside the Amy Klobuchar camp, obviously disappointed, believe that if it were not for impeachment, she would have done much better, if not one. And by the way, I will expect more of this kind of blame if impeachment, as it seems like it might do, decides to stretch further and further into the primary calendar. What we are looking at might, in the history books, be the most influential part of the most lengthy primary in American history. But it doesn't matter what you blame your loss on. All that matters is the person that stands tall. Just like these candidates, we're on the road to Iowa right now. And it is my honor to tell you that at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, PX3 begins now. Oh, it sure can get cold. Hello and welcome everybody to the PX3 show. Yeah, there we go. You guys get all of the flavor. This is indeed the airport. I am heading off for the primaries. The rest of the show is actually recorded in the studio, but I did want to make sure that I had the latest news because obviously we are in a very, very, very fluid situation and there is no more fluid situation than what is happening with impeachment. So let's go ahead on over that for a second. The news obviously breaks over the weekend that John Bolton wrote a book, and now he's selling it. That book is available for pre-order on Amazon, and it's also available for the entire Senate to freak out about. The issue at hand, of course, is that this is dropped before there is any kind of vote on whether or not witnesses will be allowed in the Senate. So, uh, obviously, those that would be leaning toward witnesses, and let's count Mitt Romney, let's count Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski, and Pat Toomey, and Lamar Alexander, there only needs to be a simple majority on this, mind you, that they will now 
accept no substitute but witnesses being called. And that, from a glance, coupled with the fact that the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that Joe, uh, uh, Cocaine Mitch did not have the votes to deny witnesses would seem at a glance to make you make one believe that this was definitely going to happen. Here's the problem. I think that there are three issues that have shaken out over the intervening time that make me think that witnesses are not going to get called on Friday when the vote happens, and once witnesses are, are avoided via the vote, I think that Cocaine Mitch is going to run the hurry-up offense, acquit Trump on Friday. I think he's going to be done by, you know, by the, by, by, by the time that Saturday rolls around. I think we are going to be done with the impeachment trial of President Trump. And at that point, everybody can assess their gains and assess their losses. But that'll be a time for another day. Let me tell you why I think the witnesses thing is not going to work. Number one, although there is, I think, a bipartisan consensus that there should be witnesses, the gulf between that and what witnesses would realistically look like is large, specifically. The Democrats are going to say, hey, look, uh, you got to call Bolton, you got to call Mulvaney. But the Republicans, and specifically Cocaine Mitch, will never go for only that and not some of the people off their wish list. So, for example, if, you know, we've seen this floated from, from early on in this process, at least as soon as it got to the Senate, that the Senate was willing to do Bolton for Biden. Either Hunter or Joe, pick your poison. But furthermore, if there is a wish list from the GOP side, then they also want the whistleblower, and they also want these Democratic operatives, and they probably want uh, 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 folks that were tied to the Obama administration. I mean, they're just going to go ahead and call anybody that they want. Now, realistically, the Republicans have the majority here. And thus far, we have seen no solidification from the Democrats. In fact, we have seen steadfast refusal for them to even draw a circle around which sacrificial lamb they'd be willing to give up to keep this going. Why? Well, those are the last two factors. Here's the second one. We have a ticking clock here. Like, I'm not in this airport so I can go watch impeachment. I'm on I'm in this airport so I can go to the Iowa caucus. You currently have four senators. These are key votes. That is I mean four senators in a situation where the Democrats need every single one of their team and they need to peel off folks from the other team. That's a fairly key voting block that is going to get increasingly annoyed the longer this lasts into impeachment or the longer this lasts into the primaries considering the fact that it looks fruitless. So, there's only so many times that Elizabeth Warren is going to be able to, through gritted teeth, say some things are more important than impeachment. 
At some point, a vein is going to burst in her neck. She's going to fall over and die. That's going to happen. This is the reason why Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham both came out yesterday and made sure that the point they were making was, you know that if you open this door, that means that we will call everybody. This now doesn't just go on for weeks. It goes on for months. So if you are Michael Bennett, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and behind closed doors, you now have a choice. You can be in Iowa for the final weekend of the caucus. This can be there for you. So everything that I said before about the Iowa caucus being, or the impeachment being blamed for Iowa caucus results, I still think that's going to happen. But you have a choice. You can be there. You know how this is going to end. The only difference is how long it's going to take. And you can make sure that the shortest possible route is secured. Or if you want to vote for witnesses, then we can do this for weeks. It's not just Iowa that's going to be affected. It's New Hampshire, it's Nevada, it's South Carolina. We're going to make sure that this thing stretches until Super Tuesday. So if you want to be president of the United States, you know that thing that you've been working toward for the past year and you've raised millions of dollars for? Well, your choice. And here's reason number three. Ultimately, all of this is predicated on the idea that there will be a possibility of a Hail Mary that Donald Trump gets removed, right? Like the, even for senators who are just there, there are going to be vying factions to determine exactly how long this goes. And so you are seeing some of the red state Democrats, including Joe Manchin, now most loudly saying, hey, you know, I don't think that we should call witnesses. Or if we did call witnesses, I think that we should call Hunter Biden. And also, I'm publicly flirting with voting for acquittal. That, to me, is real politic for him saying, guys, it's over. Like, if, if the leadership doesn't want to determine that this is over, then I'm going to make it very clear. I'm going to make it very hard for the leadership to react in any way other than this is over. And I can't imagine Joe Manchin doing that unless he believed that there was a chance that this would continue to go on. So, what I'm saying is this. If I were a betting man, I would bet that this is... Witnesses are voted down on Friday, and Donald Trump is acquitted. I think Donald Trump is acquitted by... Uh, is, is acquitted by Friday, and that means that he gets his... A big Stone Cold Steve Austin beer bash celebration for the State of the Union. That means he gets to, uh, you know, do a uh, touchdown dance in his interview with Sean Hannity before the Super Bowl. But it also means that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett can go into Iowa and they can do. Uh, they can they can have their final weekend. 
you know, new polls came out uh, this morning, literally as I'm recording this here in the San Francisco International Airport, that 47% of respondents to this poll said that they were not decided. And this, along with a massive, massive, massive toss-up there at the top of the pile between Biden, Bernie, and Mayor Pete. You know, that's crucial. It's crucial. If you want the primaries to be unaffected by this, then... Look, there are there are worse things in the world to happen than this being ended before it further affects the primary. All right, that is the most recent news, and I'm glad I was able to get it to you. However, we are going to get on with the rest of the show. We got a very, very good one for you. We got an interview about political trends. I'm going to tell you about my worries about Mayor Pete and much more. I am on my way to Iowa. The next time that you hear my voice, I will be in the Hawkeye State. See you there, friends. Politics! So, obviously, with Iowa on the horizon, it's time to start pre-authoring narratives. I'll have my official predictions on Friday. But there's... Something that's kind of bothered me. Because I'm kind of leaning after our interview last week. I've kind of been leaning toward Pete. Something about the idea that for whatever reason he just feels like that Iowa candidate. There is just this this. Biden's too old, Amy's not quite an inspiring candidate, old Mayor Pete, young, gay, just right. There's something that they just kind of feels right to me, considering the idea that Bernie is very progressive. People are going to want a moderate lane. I want to see where that's going to channel, and I have the instinct to pick Pete. But here's my problem, and I think it's Pete's problem. He doesn't have a big issue. The most defining things that he has talked about are opposition to other people's stuff. Bernie says Medicare for all. He says Medicare for all who want it. Now, I I know he has policy proposals. And I know that those policy proposals are to the left of Obama. But I'm talking about the big issue. The thing that he's going to be able to walk out in front of a crowd and say, what are we going to do? Blank. Bernie's got a bunch of these, right? Bernie's got Medicare for all, Green New Deal. Warren has her wealth tax. Yang's got UBI. Biden's got, I don't know, uh, reacting poorly to old people on the trail. I don't know what Pete's big thing is. And you want to know what's wild? When you go to his website and you look at issues They all just sort of look like your standard buffet of Democratic primary issues, except for one. And it's the second to the top, meaning that he clearly wants it to be a featured part of his campaign. 
It's the Douglas Plan, a comprehensive investment in the empowerment of black America. So if I am just looking at the stuff that he has laid out there, this is a rather tragic tale (laughs) because he wants his big thing. He wants the thing that he walks out on stage and talks about to be the Douglas plan. He's got a name for it, right? The same way Yang's got the freedom dividend and Medicare for all and the the two cent wealth tax. Like you got to have a little branding on your big project. And his is the Douglas plan. And yet he pulls abysmally with black Americans, at least up till now. Maybe he wins Iowa and maybe he gets another look by a lot of people. But as of now, he has not. And thus, what are we to do? Because he doesn't have anything else with that kind of big branding. And it seems to be, at least at this point, in this episode that comes out January 29th, 2020, it looks to be a non-starter. So, okay, you've made your big push, a plan about empowering black Americans, and yet black Americans do not seem to be very responsive to it. Well, except for Charlemagne the God from The Breakfast Club. He endorsed Pete. What does that say about the campaign? What does that say about the planning? And what does that say about the execution? And what does it say about Mayor Pete? I don't know. It scares me. It scares me. It it makes me a little jittery. It makes me think that I don't want to pick him. Oh, I got to figure it out. I'm going to have to get on the ground. I'm going to have to get on the ground. And and I'm going to start counting neighborhood signs. I'm going to do everything I can. Mm. I got a funny feeling about this. Politics. All right, guys. Now you're going to see where all that money went. You are going to see why you have supported this show on a level that, quite frankly, makes me feel all kinds of emotions. I I feel very excited. I feel nervous. I want to make sure that you guys are getting what you've paid for. And the way you pay for it is if you've got a little coin to spare, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can kick into our Patreon. And, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't remember the time that uh, uh, I was worried we were going to get to 1776. You guys have blown by that. You are you are continuing to add to this. I, I guess I'm going to have to add uh, another level here uh, because I'm still trying to figure out all the logistics uh, of, of, of going out and covering the first four primaries. I mean, this is what you guys bought. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Everything's booked. I'm going to all four of them, and you guys are going to get multiple episodes from each place. Of course, you can get the most amount of those episodes if you are at the $3 level. 
That way you get the Monday episode. You get the Thursday episode. And some of these are going to be pretty impactful, right? You know, for, for example, this Monday episode is going to be the final caucus preview episode. This will be literally, it will go out before the caucus starts and will be cobbled together from stuff that I got over the weekend. And then, of course, I mean, our regular episode will be breaking down all the results of the caucus and everything. Look, there's just a lot going on, and you guys caused it. So thank you for your support. It is honestly overwhelming, but I want to be overwhelmed. TagPoliticsSeriously.com Here's something we don't talk about it a lot, and, and I think we should talk about it more. My card game, The Contender, The Game of Presidential Debate. Obviously, we're in the thick of things here now. This is when politics is at its most fun. And I know a lot of you play tabletop games. I know a lot of you guys have friends that you talk politics with, maybe at the bar. If you haven't already picked up The Contender, the game of presidential debate, where you and your friends use real quotes from real presidents and presidential candidates, well, what are you waiting for? It's got a, an amazing rating on Amazon, and that's where you can get it. The Contender, the game of presidential debate. 500 cards in the base deck. I guarantee you you're going to get hours and hours of enjoyment out of it. And finally, consider starting your day off with the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five stories a day, five days a week, mostly gifts. The best analysis you can possibly uh, not pay money for. And also, man, do we got the best emailers in the business. Every single morning, I love it. I, I love the stuff that comes in there. Funny, insightful, interesting. Now that we're at the start of when normies pay attention to politics, why don't you go ahead and take the free political newsletter challenge? This week around Iowa, if you read a newsletter that you really like and you have a friend that you tend to talk about politics, maybe somebody in your family, go ahead and forward it to them. Say, hey, for the next few months, you might like this. It's a refreshing take on something that you obviously pay a lot of attention to and it might be able to take your blood pressure down a little bit because that's not what we're about. We're not there to get you fired up in the morning. We're there to let you know what I think and let you know what everybody else reading thinks. FreePoliticalNewsletter.com Our guest today is Matt Grossman. He is the director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University. And his latest book is Red State Blues, How the Conservative Revolution Stalled in the States. We're going to talk about party trends. Where the parties have trended over the last few decades. But first, we got to welcome him to the show. Welcome to the show, Matt. Good to be here with you. All right. So, the differences between Democratic and Republican parties, this is something that has been a tremendous fascination for me because I just completed a, a history series all about the 1960 election, which was fascinating to understand how much these parties have changed in what is relatively a short period of time, but uh, wh where do you want to start this conversation in terms of uh, uh, charting the, the, the changes of these two parties in terms of what is liberal and conservative? 
Well, the big traditional difference between the parties is that the Republicans have been uh, the party of kind of symbolic ideology of broad ideas, uh, and Democrats have been a party of social groups with particular uh, particular policy concerns. Um, that has changed over time to to some degree, um, but the the kind of uh, overall perspectives of the parties and the organizational basis of the parties um, hasn't hasn't changed as much. Uh, obviously, the big change uh, since that time in American history has been uh, the changing role of the South and racial politics uh, in uh, the U.S. Um, but that ended up kind of reinforcing that difference because the the South was already a socially conservative uh, area um, that kind of made its way. In into uh, the Republican coalition, and uh, the Democrats lost the sort of most out of out of uh, balance with the rest of the party constituency that they had of of white uh, Southerners. Okay, so let's let's go back to something that you said at the beginning there that is fascinating to me. That throughout all of the different applications of some of these ideas and maybe some of the goals, the one constant is that Republicans are about broad ideas and Democrats are a coalition that are specifically uh, uh, tailoring their solutions to the people that they have gathered together. And and so I'm I'm guessing there that those are unions and minority communities in the East Coast initially. Yeah, well, initially, um, of course, the Democrats were such a broad coalition that it included, um, you know, African Americans in the North and uh, white Southern segregationists. Yeah. So they, they, the coalition has evolved so that uh, it's <laughs> able to get along much better uh, than than it used to. Um, but but it still uh, tends to be uh, groups that are kind of recognized within the party as constituencies that are associated with different interest groups and candidates, um, and that kind of have to come together in a coalition at elections. And the difference between the two parties um, also reflects kind of what their opportunity is to build a majority in the American public. So American public has, has long been of kind of two minds. Um, they basically agree with conservatives in principle, but they agree with a lot of liberal policy positions uh, and also tend to side more with Democrats, even though they're more likely to identify as conservatives than liberals. Um, so that's given each party kind of a different uh, basis for building a majority, and it matches their internal organization, where the Republicans can reach a majority by talking in terms of broad values, and Democrats can reach a majority by kind of uh, talking in specific policies and the groups that are likely to benefit from Democratic policies. And so that's that's very interesting, because obviously we are currently, at, at the time of this interview, we are pre- Iowa caucus, but you see a lot of the conversation around the prospective candidates that are seeking the nomination on on what they do with certain demographics. Young voters, uh, non-white voters, union voters are obviously going to be a very key demographic uh, because Donald Trump did relatively well with them in 2016. Uh, uh, that that's very interesting to think of it as 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 the Democratic Party has always been on some level a coalition party in search of solutions for that coalition. 
That's right. Um, it, it does, of course, uh, sometimes correlate with, with ideology or with self-professed ideology. Um, so uh, this time there, there does seem to be a divide, uh, at least among the candidates and activists, in terms of thinking of whether to move the party uh, leftward or to try to continue with the Obama administration uh, policies. Um, but, but historically, uh, the majorities have been built uh, by uh, having, you know, not just an ideological perspective, but also a coalition of social groups that that support you. Um, and you know, there have been a long series of, of Democratic candidates that sort of represent um, the well-educated uh, white, uh, more liberal uh, voters. Um, but they really only won uh, when they combined that with solid African American support under Obama. You know that that is so. I, I and and I'm sorry I'm asking like 50 questions on this, but it is really captivating to me. The idea that throughout my lifetime, and I'm in my mid 30s now, the Democrats either internally or externally have kind of criticized themselves as like, okay, well we are the starry-eyed dreamers, and if we fail, it's because we are are just too ideologically pure uh, in in our ideas. But what you're describing is a little bit more of the kind of X's and O's block and tackle politics that really tends to breed results that, that you know who you're speaking to. You are giving them the, the ideas you, uh, and, and manpower and, and ingenuity that uh, uh, could make their lives better. And you are trying to turn them out. That seems to me more realistic of a general broad strategy than say, uh, you know, oh, our broad idea is something that is is really important. Uh, it, I guess, is there a point where Republicans identify their own groups and uh, because they certainly have their own groups that they speak to now? Is there a point in which Republicans decide that they're going to hone in on one uh, uh, one demographic and speak to them in the way that the Democrats had in the past? Well, Republicans don't really have to make much of a choice because they have such a homogenous uh, party. Um, you know, they don't really have to go around and say, I'm appealing to gun owners and whites and evangelicals because a lot of people are all, all of those things. Uh, and uh, they they tend not to, to have the same kind of diverse internal constituencies as the Democrats. Um, that said, uh, President Trump did talk uh, in his 2016 campaign more about groups um, that that he thought were either hurting or would benefit uh, from his policies. Um, he didn't only talk about groups uh, in the Republican coalition, though. He just talked to more about groups generally. Um, but the the sense in office, he's kind of uh, morphed more into a more traditional, uh, at least in policy terms, um, uh, Republican uh, in terms of what was pursued in Congress and in the administration. And so it's kind of, I think, going to be harder to pursue a sort of an out of uh, out of the box uh, Republican campaign for his uh, for his reelection, uh, and then on the the Democratic side. Um, you know, there is the closest they get to a sort of a broad, consistent message is still kind of about the groups. It's basically, you know, we represent the middle class um, and the Republicans represent the rich. And that has been a very popular, in fact, the most 
popular thing people say about the Democratic Party for 50 years has been that it represents the middle class, and the most popular negative thing to say about the Republican Party has been that it's the party of the rich or big business. So it's a it's a long-running message, um, but it isn't one we would consider ideolog- ideological. It's really about uh, the uh, you know it's about the composition of the of the parties. Um, it, it does have a disadvantage, which is that Americans maintain pretty skeptical attitudes about government, even though they endorse all sorts of uh, liberal policy positions. Um, they they tend to hold they tend to think government is uh, corrupt, that it can't do anything right, that it's inefficient, um, and that's in part because uh, Democrats really don't do a lot to counter that that broad messaging that comes from Republicans. So something that's uh, made its way around the news cycle over the last few days at the time of this recording is a a kind of ongoing evolution of a a statement that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, said that the Democratic Party is a center left, if not dead center, if not center right party. And there really is no progressive, truly progressive party in America, what do you think that says about the current uh, a conversation that is going on within the Democratic Party? And do you think that there is credence to that statement? Well, we have the least number of effective parties in the world. Uh, we have a, a real <laughs> two and only two parties, uh, so that means that they're both. They both contain. Yeah, I guess. Um, I guess uh, over over that, over, yeah, over, 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 the, over the last thirty <laughs> years, we've had what, like you know, two and two quarters, maybe, like on average. <laughs> Yeah, the political science measures of how many parties people have, and we're you know we're right at two. Uh, there yeah. are other parties that run in elections, but they're um, you know they they do much worse than in than other countries, and so that means that we you know our right and our left have to contain a lot um, that that would be separate parties in other countries. We have sort of a nativist faction that would be another party in another country that is a part of the Republican Party. Um, we have a left that is part of the Democratic Party. Uh, we have uh, racial minority concerns that are part that that might be separated in other countries that are uh, part of the Democratic Party. So they're big, they're big uh, coalitions um, that have to contain all of these all of these things. Now she is correct. Uh, AOC is correct that um, in international comparisons, the Republican Party does show up as uh, more to the right um, and more consistently to the right uh, than um, the Democratic. Democratic Party shows up as as to the left in comparison to say European or Latin American uh, parties of the of the center left um, and center right. Um, and one reason for that is that the the kinds of parties that take uh, socially conservative or nativist or anti-immigration positions elsewhere tend not to hold um, also hold these quite conservative opinions on economic policy that the Republican Party holds. And so it really is a unique party in the world, the Republican Party. In kind of uh, being clearly on the right across all of these dimensions. So, this is a meta question, and and uh, apologies if if there's not really a good answer for it. But is the fact that we do have these very broad coalitions, specifically compared to European countries or other democracies throughout the world, is that in part a necessity of the fact that? We have a massive country and we do have these gigantic first past the post elections because it's always seemed to me 
that anybody who likes to complain about the broad coalition is always the, the sentence always ends with. And that's why I should be able to take the wheel and not like and that's why I'm leaving and starting my own party because these brands are so valuable. And I guess from your perspective, do you think that they're valuable for a reason because of our system? Oh, definitely. It's true that the uh, the electoral system and the rules um, are important for driving the number of political parties and make our system much more likely to have a smaller number of parties, everything from the first past the post or plurality electoral system for uh, Congress to the fact that we have a presidential election. Um, uh, means you know that uh, we're more likely to have two parties rather than rather than more, and so it's not for lack of support for uh, alternative ideas that that we don't have uh, multi-party systems. Um, the one exception to that rule internationally has been that regional parties can succeed uh, in the kinds of electoral systems that that we have. Um, and so, you know, there have been times when our electoral system looks a little bit more like that, um, but but now we're we're also we're also lacking that possibility. So, yes, there's there's not really a whole lot of sign of of third party success on the horizon. Yeah, and there's also just a a general sort of disdain for third parties. I find <laughs> that you know it, it's all fun and games. Everybody's for a more European style until your candidate loses because, and, and, and also, I don't even want to correlate it. And also a third party candidate gets more than 1% of the vote like that, 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 that seems to be the breaking point at which point uh, a, 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 an average American voters patient seems to be strained about the idea that third parties even exist. Yeah, and that that is about the electoral system also. So you know, in a in a system where you can just vote for a party, as in most major democracies, and um, you know that's not going to hurt your your second choice preference. Um, that you know that tends not to be as as big of a, an issue, and so more people more people do it. Um, and we even have places like Germany that have both a district election and a party election, and so you can you can vote for both. And in those systems, what you see is that you know people vote for their favorite party for the party party vote, but then they vote um, for uh, their uh, favored individual candidate, usually more from the ma uh, from the major parties for their local district. So you wrote a book about conservatism and the, the, the conservative revolution stalling in the United States. Uh, it seems to be 1964 that people point to the Goldwater uh, a push for presidency and that uh, a fight amongst the Republican Party that begins that. Reagan, obviously, is the most popular version of it. Uh, uh, why do you think that we are at a stall point with conservatism in the United States? Well, the book really focuses on uh, changes in American state governments uh, more recently. So since, you know, in the early 1990s, Republicans only controlled three state governments, and they got up to the last few years before 2018, they had controlled up to 26 states completely, meaning they had the governorship and both chambers of the legislature. So they really um, were on quite an electoral run um, in, in the U.S. states. 
Um, but uh, I track the sort of policy consequences of those uh, gains, and I, and I find that just as just like at the federal level, um, it's very hard for the kind of professed conservative agenda to actually be implemented. So, for example, over that same period, um, the median state doubled its spending, even accounting for inflation. Uh, states are more concentrated in areas like education and health than they ever have been. So Republicans don't seem to be kind of winning uh, a battle over how much money to spend or where to spend the money. Uh, they have had more success in changing social issues. So abortion and gun laws have changed in, in every state. Um, uh, but uh, those policies don't seem to be as associated with real changes on the ground. So abortion and gun laws have changed in every state, but the actual abortion rate or the gun ownership rate is not has not changed in states controlled by Republicans versus Democrats. So I think this is sort of part of a broader problem that this um, desire for a smaller government that does less um, or for a return or restoration of an of a original American culture, um, those are kind of campaign themes, but when translated into actual public policy, um, they're often quite unpopular or kind of unimplementable. So we saw that recently with the teacher strikes where a few states where um, where Republicans did manage to cut education spending and taxes, um, you know, when once it actually resulted in less school spending, um, it was a lot less popular. And so the, all of those seven red states that had those teacher walkouts actually reversed uh, their uh, education spending decisions, um, and some of them actually increased taxes in response to it. So that conservative agenda that's popular on the campaign trail um, becomes less popular uh, when it's actually implemented in government. <laughs> so voters in general want to elect somebody who says they are going to have a tight budget but don't actually like spending less money. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, back to this kind of general versus specific thing. So yeah. people are for a smaller government, but they're not for less education spending, less healthcare spending. They're for less regulation, but they're not for less environmental regulation or less consumer regulation. So um, you know, once you actually have to kind of make those choices, they're they're a lot less popular than than they were when you said you were just uh, cutting government. Do Republicans still hold a majority of the state houses? Uh, they don't, so they've lost. They lost a few last time, but but they still control more than Democrats. So there's still some that are that are split. Um, and the Democrats found it easier to win and win a few gubernatorial elections in 2018 than they did to uh, win those legislatures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that that has been a very, very, very interesting, interesting trend. Uh, you know, and, and maybe it does belay the rise of Trump. And I guess this will be our Trump segue that. Donald Trump, for everything that he was in terms of exciting to some conservative voters, uh, I don't think anybody would confuse him for a a, a stalwart uh, of, of the budget. He, he seems to be somebody that wants to spend money on his own causes. Uh, is this just the new model? If, if we are watching... Voters say, hey, I want the idea of a smaller, more efficient government, but I don't really like the idea that money is either not going to go to places that I want it to go or even worse, go to places that I actively disagree with. Then what I really want is somebody who says they're going to give me an efficient government, but spend it on gigantic projects that I like and not the things that I don't like. 
Well, in the campaign, uh, Trump was sort of able to just just upfront say that he wa- he wanted a smaller government, except he wasn't going to cut Social Security, Medicare. He wasn't like those other mean Republicans. Um, and people forget that 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 part of the message was successful. Um, the American voters actually considered Donald Trump more moderate than the Republican Party as a whole, whereas they considered Hillary Clinton to be a pretty typical Democrat in her liberalism. So it sort of did help him to kind of differentiate himself uh, from the Republican Party on um, those issues, particularly when it when it came to um, entitlements. But in a two-party system, he's you know once he's in office, um, you know what did he have to do? He had to pursue uh, Obamacare repeal and a big tax cut, um, and that really didn't look very much different than uh, other Republican campaigns. Um, and the the backlash in 2018 didn't look very different than other backlashes to newly formed presidents. So um, there's this idea that that people seem to have that once my party gets in control, I'll be able to show that everything that that I can implement things people like, um, and we'll have a permanent majority. Um, but the the long history is the opposite. That once a party um, achieves some things or tries to move policy toward the left or the right, the public moves in the opposite direction. So <laughs> under Obama, they were moving uh, rightward, and under uh, Trump, they've been moving leftward. Um, so there, there was a chance to kind of differentiate himself in the campaign, um, but he's, you know, once in office, um, become uh, less popular and become um, a more more traditional uh, Republican in his policy uh, activity. Yeah, I would say that that and the anti-war stuff was probably the, the the two things that you look at and you're like, oh, okay, well that's definitely not what a Republican frontrunner normally says. They don't normally actively attack the last war <laughs> yeah and one one thing that is um that that the Republican Party's kind of broad symbolism uh, focus allows is a lot of different specific policies uh, to go in into that broad focus. So, you know, basically the Republican Party kind of thinks might is right in America is right in the world affair in in world affairs, and that is a a broad set of symbols that um, can contain both the Bush foreign policy and the Trump foreign policy, which which otherwise you might think are are near opposites <laughs> as expressed. Um, but uh, you know the the sort of um, you know just basically belligerent Americanism on the world stage is is sort of the commonality um, between those, and that's that's the part that appeals to the voters on the right. So Trump. And Bernie Sanders in 2016 seemed to widen the ideological spectrum of both parties. We are obviously seeing that uh, uh, in a lot more stark contrast now during the Democratic primary. Is there anything that, that you notice from the state level or just general voter trends that suggests that this is an era where we are looking for candidates that give us something different than the orthodoxy of either party? Well, I don't think we're we're looking for out of you know out of candidates with different different policy positions. Um, I think that you know despite the the big supposed difference in kind of how far to go leftward in the Democratic field, the actual policy positions are are quite <laughs> quite similar across the the field, um, and that reflects Democratic voters um, now having more aligned policy positions. You know, there's fewer pro-life Democrats. There's 
fewer pro-gun Democrats, and that's reflected in both candidates and uh, in uh, Democratic voters and activists. Um, so I don't think you're looking for kind of out of out of line um, candidates, um, but uh, you know there there is some some rise in. Um, kind of people being able to rise quickly, uh, Mayor Pete, um, Andrew Yang being kind of examples that you might think of as people that pre-Obama would not have been able to kind of get on a debate stage and make um, progress in the in the Democratic primary in the way that they have have now. So we've had a sort of an opening of the process um, to outsiders or to people earlier in their political careers, perhaps. Um, but I don't think an openness to kind of people who go against their their party norms. Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, Obama was somebody that that initially, when he even announced, was thought to be, well, this is probably a cycle too early, but it'll get give him some good experience. Uh, then obviously he goes to goes on to two terms in the presidency. Donald Trump, obviously, literally no governmental or military experience at all, wins the presidency. So uh, uh, is do you think that this is the beginning of that trend or now that we elect a reality show host as president, maybe that is something that that curtails it? Yeah, sometimes we go in the opposite direction. So the two leading Democrats in the in the polls right now, uh, either one of them, Sanders or Biden, would be the the president with the most congressional experience that we have ever elected. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you could you could also see it uh, moving moving in the other direction. People seeing uh, the value of experience after Trump. All right. Well, I mean, I guess so. We'll we'll get you out of here on this one. Is there any kind of trend that you've noticed in in the shifting uh, window of either party that you think will play out in 2020? Is there any one thing that you think is is uh, a trend wise due for a, a moment in the sun? Well, I, I don't know if it's a do for a moment in the sun, but one thing I would uh, keep an eye on that I have been keeping an eye on is uh, African-American uh, turnout. Um, you know, there were two elections with extremely high African-American turnout. They both had Obama on the ballot. Um, Clinton did not do anywhere near as well. Um, and we don't know yet if that was just a sign that um, those voters were only going to come out for Obama or um, if it was a sign that, that Clinton didn't have an appeal uh, to minority voters as much as uh, she expected to. Um, but, but there's some interesting evidence coming out that uh, African-American voters are just less angry about politics and also uh, less motivated by anger. Um, and I mm. think that really has been seen in the Trump administration where you just don't see the, the resistance in, you know, has been disproportionately uh, white suburban women. Um, it has not really involved uh, a lot of uh, African Americans. And so in an election where we're likely to see a huge increase in turnout based on the trends in 2018, uh, I think people may be surprised that African Americans are not having the same uh, angry war between the left and the right that um, that white voters are, um, and that that might be reflected um, in continued uh, lower turnout among African Americans in 2020. Very, 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 very interesting. Of course, we've been speaking with Matt Grossman, he is the director of the Institute of Public Policy and Social Re Social Research at Michigan State University. His latest book is Red State Blues, How the Conservative Revolution Stalled in the States. Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. This has been awesome. Great to be with you. Thanks.
Politics. And that'll wrap it up for us today. I got a plane to catch, baby. First, we got to thank our Titanic $10 tier. Dennis, Michael, Jonathan, Will, Peter, Olin, and Angela, Christopher, Nick, Frozen Summers, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Squids, Mixtape, Jaime, Adam, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their illustrious and growing ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder that you can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And I'll tell you what, if you are in Iowa and you want to uh, uh, tip me off to someplace that I definitely got to see, people that I definitely have to talk to, if you're working in Iowa as part of one of the campaigns, hit your boy up totally uh, anonymously. It'd It'd be fine. I like to talk. I just want to talk. I like talking to people. All right. You can hit me on Twitter. I mean, that's a good place you can contact me too. Justin R. Young. Instagram, the same thing. Snapchat, the same thing. Buy my card game, The Contender. The game of presidential debate on Amazon. And sign up for the newsletter. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Next time I speak to you, oh, I'm going to be in Iowa. I'm going to be in Iowa, baby. I will see you there. Until next time, I want to remind you that some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. And I saw somebody on TikTok talking about politics, but this right here is the only show with the stones to talk about. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>